0: Welcome to Shedding Light Hunting Stories Podcast, the podcast dedicated to the average Joe and their hunting stories. I'm your host, Travis Williams. You're listening to episode 30. Hey guys, welcome to the show. I uh, got to thinking about when did this start and it was back December 2018 and so that makes 32 weeks ago that this podcast started and this is episode 30 so that's not too bad and I look at that and I just think you know it's, it's been encouraging to hear all these different stories and hear people's different perspectives. Um, you know sometimes you can you can listen to podcasts on tactics and my head gets so full that I'm going to explode. There are a million tactics for a million species and so much to keep track of and you forget half of what you learn. Um, But honestly, some of these stories that I've heard over the last 32 weeks, I don't think I'll ever forget. Stories stick with me, and that's why I created this. So I hope that you're enjoying it. Hope that you're having fun. Uh, I just kind of picture people putting it on while they're going down the road or maybe if uh this fall if maybe you just cu- you just started on the podcast and you're catching up maybe you found uh troy ruiz and wanted to hear this particular podcast whatever the case i just picture you listening and i hope that you enjoy these stories as much as what i do and even if you don't i tell you, i enjoy it i'd do it just for me um <laughs> but if you do like it uh, go ahead and hit subscribe if you want to share it tell a friend about it i'd appreciate it uh, as I said, we had Troy, Troy Ruiz on last week, episode 29, so if you did not hear that, that was part one. Troy came on and did a fantastic job bringing us through his early childhood, Louisiana hunting, and just, just some unique situations he was in, and what led to him starting in the hunting industry, and that was a joy to listen to. We decided to break that into two parts, uh, just kind of due to length, and we kind of switch gears, and we start talking about elk. And if you are like me, uh, headed out on an elk trip this year, uh, it can't come soon enough. You're super excited, and I'm just, I'm pumped. And so I thought, let's just do a few episodes here, mainly where we talk about elk. Uh, but at the end of this podcast, Troy is going to switch gears a little bit and talk about a memorable hunt, uh, that has to deal with duck hunting and Phil Robertson. And I'll let him tell you that story because it is unexpected, fantastic, and it it gets a little deep, I'll be honest with you. Um, but I hope that you enjoy this one. I'm not going to ramble much longer. I'm just going to say thanks for listening and we're going to go ahead and jump into this interview part two with Troy Ruiz of Primo's Hunting.
1: So, Troy, uh, you know, we look at uh, some of these stories that kind of go around your career, things that you've been able to experience. Talk a little bit about, you know, it's interesting to me that a lot of your hunting has been documented through Primos, right? So, you know, there's people that have their favorite hunts and things like that. But what what stands out to you whenever you think about, uh, let's talk elk for a little bit. That's what's on people's mind that are getting ready to go. Uh, Talk about
2: elk. Uh maybe how you got into that and some other stories that go with that. Well you know my my first elk experience uh took place when I was working at Mossy Oak. It would have been in ninety I ninety six or ninety seven. And um it was me, Tack Robertson, who was working with me at Mossy Oak at the time. He um he actually manages um a big duck lodge over in Louisiana. At the at right now, uh, my mind just went blank at the name of it, and I know everybody in it. Again, like earlier, my mind went blank. But <laughs> we were we were going to go and film a friend of ours over there, Corky Richardson, who was a, a PSE pro staff shooter. Him, another fr- very good friend of ours, Bill Eppards, who was a PSE pro staff shooter, and also Pete Shepley at the time, who owns PSE, who was invented PSE, and we were all going to go elk hunting in the Heles. Now. At the time, I I was a little, no, I can't say I was a little, I was a lot heavier than I am now, uh, especially in my younger years, and and I had gained a pretty good bit of weight when I got into the car wreck and not working that much. So we were going to go elk hunting in the healers. Man, I'm all excited about it. Knew nothing about elk hunting other than what I've read and seen and talked about because I had never been yet. But I'm going with these guys that know elk hunting from one end to the other. We get there and we we spike camp. We did everything, you know, everything on public land that you could do, and it was just absolutely incredible. And I'm I'm filming Corky, and we finally get on this one big bull after about five days. And I'll never forget about the second day. We got these bulls bugling. We were down at the bottom of this valley, and back in those days, the cameras and the equipment that we carried is, was much more heavier and much more bigger than it is now. Um, mm-hmm. I tell the, I tell these young guys today, I mean, man, you think running up the hill with a GoPro and a little XD cam is something. You ought to try carrying <laughs> about 95 pounds on your shoulder and going.
0: And that's the truth.
2: I never forget, because back in those days, we didn't have the cool vests and all the stuff that we wear nowadays. I, my turkey vest was my vest to carry all my equipment. And the batteries were bigger. The tapes were bigger. The tripods were huge. The heads, the fluid heads were huge. Uh, we came in one night and, and I hung my camera, and my tripod, and weighed it, and then I took my vest and weighed it, and everything together was 97 pounds. Wow, wow. And about the third morning, we got on these elk, and they were bugling at the top. And I, I you, guys, at- you guys are you might have said this are you bow hunting? We were bow hunting. We were, okay. yeah. Those, and those all three of those guys were well, two of them were PSE pro staffers, and Pete Shepley, who owns PSE, and. um Those elk were bugling up there, and they were just screaming. I looked at Corky, and I said, man, you can't call them elk from up there to down here. I said, because I don't know if I can make another trip up that hill. Anyway, up the hill we went, and I mean we went straight up the hill. We got up there, and the elk shut up, and they bedded down. So Corky looked at me and said, what do you think? I said, I've never elk hunted. I'm I'm not that, that smart of a man. I said, but I think we need to stay up here until they decide to get up out of their bed and make a move as long as the wind's right. I said, because it makes no sense for us to go all the way back down, go to camp, eat a sandwich, and then come all the way back and try to get on them again. I said, that's just me thinking out loud. He, he said, well, what about eating? I said, I'll be fine. I said, I just don't want to make that walk again. He said, okay. <laughs> so anyway, we stayed. And about an hour and a half later, one of those bulls got up and started bugling because a couple of cows got up and were moving. And we wound up getting on that bull, and we got on the ridge with him. And we start calling this bull to us. Well, back in those days, we didn't know a whole bunch about the callback method and the way we do it now and how we get the great footage we got. We just knew, let's call this out, let's get him in, let's kill him. Well, Corky's calling, and I'm sitting there filming. Back in those days, we had remote mics, and we had cables, and we had stuff going everywhere. And I see this bull coming down the ridge, coming straight to us, and I'm like, oh, my gosh, this is fixing to happen. Well, he gets about 80 yards, and he stops, and he's looking the situation over, and he don't see anything. He doesn't see a cow. He doesn't see nothing. So he just peels off the ridge to go down low to follow some of the other elk where they where they were going low. And Corky just takes off running. And I'm like, Corky, Corky. I start unplugging cables and everything. Well, I, I finally get all my stuff unplugged from my shotgun mics and things that I had, and I take the camera off tripod, tripod. Just by the time I get it on my shoulder, I hear, Squack. He shoots the bull, <laughs> and he can, and it's a big bull, and it's I think he scored like three seventy two or something. Oh he comes man. running, yeah, he comes running back, and he is just all excited and all. And I'm just standing there with this look on my face, and and I'll be honest with you, this is pre Jesus, so I cussed him from one end to the other. <laughs> and uh, and he, your, your BC days. oh I'm, gosh, I made him yeah. feel so bad, and I was like, Quilky, that's not what we came here for. So we go find the elk, and we talk about it, and I shoot the whole deal, and he talks about what happened. And and it worked. You know, you in all honesty, like Wilbur says, you can connect the dots and make people believe everything worked. And it did. Uh, the good thing was, my camera, I hit the record button when I was pulling it off the tripod, and, and with Corky's wireless mic, you actually hear the elk bugling, and you hear him shoot the elk. so. It all worked out okay, and it worked fine. We wound up cutting the elk in half, and we came in with a 4 wheel and got it. And Corky felt bad the whole trip. And I don't play golf. I'm not a golfer, but his dad, living in Phoenix over there, worked for Ping Golf Clubs. He was like one of the big guys up in Ping. So I get home, and about two weeks later, this big box shows up at the office from Corky Richardson. I'm like, what in the world is this? Well, I open this box and it's a brand new set of Ping I two green dots. Now, at the time, I had no idea what a Ping I I two green dot is, but I I just asked somebody, which was Bill Suggs and Cuz, who are huge golfers. Cuz walks in my office and he's like, "Where'd you get that?" I was like, "Ah, oh, Corky sent it." He says, "Do you know what that's worth and what that is?" I said, nah. I said, "Just some golf clubs." He said, "Troy." That's the, at the time, it was the best of the best. Of, I mean, he had he had drivers in there. Cuz told me, he says, Troy, that, that's $4,000 worth of golf clubs. Oh, wow. And I looked at Cuz, and I said, Can we, you want to buy them? <laughs>
1: <laughs>
2: so I actually played golf for a little while with Cuz and those guys and tried to get into it and realized that I didn't need to, to, to get another hobby. I already had one, and that was hunting and golf. Coming from a, a sports background, I played a lot of baseball in school, all through high school. And I, I you know, pretty athletic, uh, so to speak. And I just uh I was like, Man, I, I, I can't get into this. So I just used them in the backyard to blow off steam when I needed to go hit a bunch of golf balls and that's what I did, and the times that I did go play with cousins, and them, it's interesting to me because I'd go play with them. Like, I'd see them leave the office having a bad day and go try to play golf and relax and wind up having a worser day. I'm like, I don't know if i would any part of that. So Yeah. Yeah, you know the last, last time I went with them, I carried fishing poles, and I got off at number eight, and they all got mad at me and never invited me out. <laughs>
1: You know uh, you know, if you're into hunting, you can only have one or two expensive hobbies, and golf is not the cheapest thing to be involved no, in. and so. and at the
2: time, I had, you know, I turned my hobby into my occupation, and I knew I wasn't going to be no Tiger Woods, so I had to close yeah. that deal real quick. Yeah, so let's
1: uh, kind of looking. So you have that experience with your first elk hunt. Uh, take us up to the point where you go on a hunt for yourself. So how did that all work?
2: That experience that I had um, with Corky and when I was working at Moss Elk, was my first, and it was absolutely incredible just to hear those elk and hear what they do and to watch what they do and understand what they do. And then when I came to work here at Primo's, um, Will asked me "Ah, about two years into being here, he says, hey, would you be uh, interested in doing a little elk hunt? And I said, "Uh, no, not really. And he kind (laughs) of looked at me funny. I said, that's a crazy question, Will. I said, you you want me to bow hunt a gun? He said, no, I really would like you to bow hunt. He said, because of what we do with the calls and everything. And I said, man, yeah, I'd love to. Love to be a part of that. So I had a chance to go and, and the ranch that we hunt in New Mexico, um, over the years we've we've kind of figured this ranch out in a way and, and I don't mean to figure it out to where it's easy, but we figured out what we were doing wrong on these elk and on this particular hunt we were doing everything wrong. When we first started hunting on this ranch, um we would do the typical elk hunter way of doing things is get to the top, beat the elk up there and when they get up there start hunting them. Well, that just didn't work very well simply because when the elk start going up, that's when the the steering currents and and the and the wind would change and that's why the elk went up cuz the wind was in their face. And we I can't tell you how many times we just absolutely jacked that up, but years down the road we kind of figured it out and now Honestly, we don't go in after these elk until nine thirty, ten o'clock in the morning once they get to the top and we get the wind right and we get up in there in them and, and do what we need to do. But And we do it to where we're putting as minimal a pressure on the elk as we possibly can because the last thing you want to do on any ranch or any piece of property is bump something more than one time off of your place onto your neighbor's place who may not be putting any pressure. And chances are that critter ain't coming back if you put too much pressure on him. Mm-hmm. So anyway, this this hunt took place. It would have been the second, the second, third year we were on the ranch, and we still hadn't figured out what was going on. And we started going early. In, in all honesty, the rut on this place. Uh, we figured out really starts happening. The, the key day to be there is about the 13th of September, whereas we would always go the 1st of September. That's that's just that's elk rule, man. You go to the Midwest, I mean to the western part of the United States to elk hunt, you go the very first of September. Well, we learned that's not the smartest thing to do on on this ranch. The way the rut rolls, but this was the first week of September and the elk were bugling, but it was a little bit bugling in the morning and just a little bit in the afternoon, and it was myself uh jim thompson a friend of ours who runs the ranch uh shane smith who was filming with us at the time and art mott um art was there to to call for me shane was filming i was hunting and art was going to be the guy that falls back and calls and we just couldn't get on any bulls that were responding to calls so we decided to go hunt a waterhole that we had uh come across that had a pretty good bit of sign on it and just sit there for the afternoon and just be patient and see what happens because we knew these elk were coming out of this drain at some point in time. We just didn't know at what time they were coming through there, whether it was after dark or, you know, middle of the day or whatever. So we go to sit at this water hole, and it's a it's an incredible spot because it, you're up on the side of a ridge. It's almost like being in a tree stand, and the water hole's down low. So it's about a 15-yard shot straight down, but across the water hole to the other side, it's about 40. And then up the other bank, it's about 60. And the hole's in a ravine, and, and stays with water uh, because it's a working cattle ranch. And we're sitting there that afternoon, and, and somewhere about, I don't know, an hour before dark, because it's in a deep ravine and in a big valley. When the sun goes behind the mountain, 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 um, you get a lot of shade in this ravine, and still have a lot of daylight. So you really got time. Anyway, I guess about an hour before dark, this elk bugles up the drain. And man, I came uncorked because in my mind I was thinking, yeah, we're not going to hear nothing, and we're going to chase elk for the next five or six days, and here we go again, same old, same old. And with this elk bugle, he was straight up the drain, two hundred, two hundred fifty yards, and I'm thinking, oh no, this might happen. And then he bugled again, and he bugled again, and I can tell he was bugling out of his bed because it was just a, just a simple little, mm-hmm, just letting everybody know where he was. And it got quiet for about fifteen, twenty minutes. And the next time he bugled, he's 100 yards. And I'm thinking, this thing's coming. Well, immediately the adrenaline rush goes from zero to 60 like it was nothing. Just boom. Immediately I get the shakes, and I'm freaking out, and I start looking at rocks, and I'm ranging this, and I'm ranging that, and I'm I'm trying to make sure that where he's going to go. And then I range like 10 or 12 different spots, and then my brain goes, Troy, you can't compress all that, son. How are you going to remember all that? <laughs> So it's it's once you get out of the drain and down into this bottom, it's it's just big spruce and, and and big giant pine timber. But under the pine timber, it's kind of grown up a little bit, so you really can't see an elk, but you can see his rat coming. Well, I look out there and I could see this joker coming. I'm like, oh my gosh, he's coming straight to the waterhole. hole. Shane's over my right shoulder video, and Art and Jim are sitting right behind me because there was no need to fall back and call because the elk's coming to the to the uh, waterhole. And he's coming and he's coming. I lose sight of him. I see him. I lose sight of him. I see him. You know how that goes, just like deer hunting, man. Your adrenaline goes, and you're like, oh, he went the other way, and then all of a sudden there he is. And he pops up right above the, the rim across the, the little waterhole there and drops down, and he's coming through the rocks, and I can hear his feet just... <laughs> crumbling in the rocks and rocks rolling off in the water and he goes down and he starts drinking and he's drinking water at the bottom of the hole at 40 yards facing straight at me and his ears are back and, you, and, and it's it's such a quiet afternoon that you can actually hear him drinking. They, they, they don't drink like a dog. They drink like a cow or a horse. They, they sip the water. They suck it in and you can hear him on the video just Well Shane is sitting behind me and he opens the the flip-out viewfinder on the side of the cameras that we were using at the time, the Sony 400s. It had a regular viewfinder, but it also had a little flip-out viewfinder that you could view if you needed it. Well, he looked, to was wanted to make sure his colors were right, and he was in good focus because he was backed up away from the camera. And when he shut it, he shut it and pressed it to lock. And the noise that it made, audibly, I don't... I heard it because I was sitting right next to the camera, but I don't think if you was five feet from the camera you couldn't hear it but this elk heard it and and it's funny to watch the video because when he shuts that door it goes it's it's like i mean you can't i can't even make it that's that soft and when he shuts that camera the elk's ears go from being straight back and calm and relaxing drinking water to whoop they go straight in front of him and straight up and he stops drinking water and i'm like he heard that and he picks his head up, and I still remember it, I, which I can look at the footage, but I can remember seeing it, the water just dripping off his chin. It, and to me, it was in slow motion at the time, and it's dripping. And he looks right up at us, and he's just staring at us. And I'm like, "Crap!" He knows we're here. But he bolts to run, and he goes up to the to the top of the bank, and he stops, and he's standing, and he's looking at us, and he barks, and he's kind of quartering away. And I just drew my bow back, and Shane says, "You can do it." He's sixty. And I'm thinking, I'm not even thinking yardage at the time now. I'm just thinking, where do I put this arrow, where do I put this arrow? And, and Art Mott, who was sitting behind me, had a range finder, and he goes 61. And when I heard him say 61, I knew the elk was, was he was on pins and needles. I mean, he was G waiting on O, and I'm like, gosh. I, so I aimed low. Uh, I put my 60-yard pin about, well, actually my 60 was on the ground and my 50 was on his heart and I said, I'm either going to miss him or he's going to duck right into it. And when I pulled the trigger, instead of wheeling to run in the opposite direction, he turned to to run down the hill to his left and my left, which when he turned, his left front leg went back. And when he did, he turned, which opened up his chest level to me, and my arrow went right between his brisket and his front leg and went right through his heart. And I thought to myself... You know, at first I wanted to think, man, that was a great shot, Troy. You're incredible. But then I thought, I don't know who made that arrow go where it had to go, but thank you, whoever that was. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, the elk ran off and went over the hill, and, you know, we did the same old thing. I turned around, and I'm I'm just ecstatic at what just happened. And I told the guys, I said, hey, I don't know. We look back at the footage, which is one of the blessings of being able to video is going back and look at what happened, whether you go in and look for the animal or you don't. We really couldn't tell where the arrow went. I told Shane, I said, y'all all all stay right here. Let me just ease down there. Let me look at my arrow, and that'll determine whether we go or we just go back to camp. Well, when I picked up the arrow, there's just blood everywhere on the side Mm -hmm. of that bank. You just couldn't see it because it was just a splatter. So I looked at them, and I gave them the, the thumbs up from across the way, and I went over the levee, and when I went over the levee, that's where it turned into where all those big pines are, and it was just basically pine needles from for about 75 yards. And I could just see, I, my naked eye, I could see the blood trail through the, through the pine needles. And I just walked over the hill and kept going, and I never even told them what I was going to do, and I kept walking, kept walking. I went about 70, 75, 80 yards, and I seen him laying there dead. And, man, I just stood there looking at him, and I'm like, is he dead? You know, and 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 I had my bow, and I knocked another hour, and I just eased up and eased up, and the whole time I'm looking at his rack because he's a really nice bull. We probably, I think he wound up scoring like three twenty two. And and for me, that's,
1: mm-hmm. I, that's look.
2: A I, yeah, I'm still I'm still on the first come first serve basis when it comes to elk hunting. The first one walks up, I'm shooting it. But <laughs> I walked up, and, and I never once thought, Troy, look at his stomach, see if he's breathing, but he was dead a hammering, and, and I came back, and I came running back. I was so excited, and when I got about halfway down to the water, I jumped, and, and I thought to myself, that wasn't very smart. Number one, you don't know how deep this water is, and you don't know what's in it, and when I landed in the middle of the, the tank that he was drinking water out of the, the pond, um, it was about knee deep, and I hit that pond, and I said, I got him, and I found him, and Oh man, we were high five, and the sad thing was nobody ran out into the water to come congratulate me. I had to walk out. <laughs> but that man. that was my that was my first one, and and it, it, the funny thing is he fell like 25 yards from the road, so we was able to get the truck to him and and load him in the truck hole so we can take pictures of him like I wanted to, and it was actually Brad's brand new truck, and when we loaded him in the truck, we loaded him in butt first, and we slid him in the truck. Uh, Art and Jim were in the truck pulling the back end, and me and Shane were pushing the front. End, and his G three went right through Brad's back light of his truck. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the, the making it smart.
1: <laughs>
2: yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm you know, hey, you get your first elk, you tear up your friend's brand new truck. What the heck? Yeah. Uh,
1: uh, oh man, I can't wait. I tell you, I, people who listen to this podcast at all know that I'm, I'm headed out for my first bow hunt. I went out in 2016, uh, rifle hunting, and uh, you know, I just. It was just so challenging, and so hard. I was in Colorado, and I said, you know, if I ever go back, I definitely want to have a bow in my hand because I actually I don't know if it'd be easier, but the whole calling and getting in there whenever they're vocalized. You talked about that that elf being in the drainage, and yeah. that's that's what I'm going for. I want to hear those elf calling, I want to get into that game. And, and if I get something well, great, people just get
2: out there. They yeah. say it's easier, either or, whether you go with a rifle or with a bow. None none of them are easier because think about it when you when you go in during the rut. That's the easiest time to catch that bull at his most vulnerable time, but then you're dealing with all his cows.
1: Mm-hmm. when
2: you go with a gun in the late season, you find a feeding area, and you find where they're spending all their time, then you're dealing with a bull that's probably almost went nocturnal and or you know he's so nervous about what's going on around him at every every level of sense. Sense is at its highest, his ears, his eyes, his yep. nose, everything. And, and so, either or, it's not easy. Killing elk ain't easy. I'll be honest with you, killing a cow is probably the hardest thing you'll ever do.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, Troy, I want to be respectful of your time. you have heard some good stories about your elk and uh, some they're going back to when you first started. But I thought of a question I want to ask you uh just kind of pop in my head. What is your most memorable hunt? You've been a guy that's hunted all kinds of. Elk and deer and it sounds like a little bit of everything. So, um and we can have you back on the show and get some maybe some other stories sometimes. What, what's your most memorable, memorable memorable
2: hunt that you've had? Well, I've, I've I've had that question asked many times, and when you when you're blessed to, to be able to do what I've done and, and travel to the places around the world that I have, for me, you know, you you would think that it was one animal or one epic critter that that or epic moment that did something whether it was your first deer your first elk, your first turkey mm-hmm. or a buddy or whatever um f- for me one thing is being able to do what i do and or done what i have done uh, is is the, the friends that i've made not only in this industry but around the world um i got friends in africa i got friends in new zealand and, and it's people with with today's world of technology that i that i can stay in contact with which is which is to me is really really cool. And you talk to them like they're sitting right here with you, whether you're on Facebook or you know texting them or emailing them, whatever. The only thing is, when they call me, I'm sleeping. When I call them, they're sleeping. So either way, <laughs> depending on where they at. But but I've had that question asked to me a lot, and and it's not a deer hunt, it's not an elk hunt, it's not a turkey hunt. It's not some of the more epic type hunts for me. That's my uh, truly my most memorable. Uh, hunt slash uh, moment slash life-changing experience but for me it was it was in December of of 99 and I was uh, duck hunting in Texas it was me and Phil Robertson and back then the Duckman crew um, it was before Phil started doing Duck Dynasty and also doing um, the duck show that he had it was when he was just doing the Duckman videos and Still had a little old shop in his backyard and was on our pro staff. And back then, uh, I, that's what I kind of used. I was producing uh, Whistling and Wings, the television series, and also the the D, uh, well, it was VHS back then, the VHS series of of tapes back then. And it was very successful because there were not a lot of people doing a lot of duck stuff back then. The, the people you see now, Fred Zink and those guys from Avian X and and Tom Matthews and the guys with Avery Outdoors and Kelly Powers, the goose champion of the world back then. All those guys were a major part of what what I was able to do in whistling the Wings because without them, it was just me and a couple of guys there at Mossy Oak. So you had to have that, that workforce of people that were knowledgeable and, and and enjoyed duck hunting as much as I did to bring it to the table for you to be able to video what you needed. And Phil and his crew was one of them. Phil was on the Mossy Oak Pro Staff. And... This uh, this story and the the moment of this hunt or the the, the time of this hunt what was was all started way back in the beginning of my little life. Um, there was somebody uh, and, and from a much higher being putting this whole puzzle together to get me to this point. And but prior to that that. Hunt in December. um I, I'll, I'll back up to November. I had been living in West Point now uh, for several years, and and my daughter um, was going to a private school there, Oak Hill Academy. And I came home from a trip one night, and my uh, wife and I were sitting down eating dinner, and she says, um she says we need to talk. And I said, what you want to talk about? She says, well, she said, Shanna's Shanna's having a tough time in school. She's not doing very good. I said how you figure? I said, the girl's getting straight A's. She said, no, it's not her grades or, or, you know, all the stuff she's doing in school. It's just she's having a tough time making making friends over here. I said, well, she's got a couple of little friends in school. I said, yeah, but that's, she says she only really visits with them and talks with them when she's at school. Other than that, it's, it's very minimal. It's not like she's got a friend she can go to their house, because we live way out in the country, and we're kind of we're hermits out there, but I thought everything was good, but Undoubtfully to me, it wasn't, because me being the person I was at that time, when we moved to West Point, for me to take the position there at Mossy Oak, I did not consult their thoughts at all. Um, I came home from that meeting with Cuz and Toxie, and I, I I told them, I said, here's what I'm doing, We're gonna I'm going to do it like this, I'm going to do it like this, I'm going to do it like this, and we're going to do this, and then we're going to do this. I didn't say, hey, girls, I want to talk to you all about an idea I got and an opportunity for us. It wasn't about us. It was about me. Um, It it was an opportunity to take a position that anybody in their right mind would give their left arm to do. And and that's what I saw it as. Man, you're going to have the greatest job in the world doing what you love to do. So I wasn't going to take no for an answer. And before I I started and moved them up there, I was going back and forth. I would work during the week and then come home on weekends in the summertime. And then that, that spring, I stayed on the road. So Belinda and I talked a little bit, and she said, look, she says, here's what I've been thinking. I'm thinking that it would probably be best right now, I think Shannon was in the seventh grade, it would be best right now that we go back home, I go back home with her, let her finish out all the way through high school, and then when she gets ready for college, we'll decide where she's going to go, and you just continue to do it to work the way you used to work. And, and I said, no, I said, that that's not going to work. I didn't move you all up here. And take this job to be away from y'all, which I was more concerned about losing my job than I was about my family. And quite honestly, um, I, I, I loved what I did, and I still do. Uh, but at that time, it was a, it was a growing entity, and we were we were growing, especially Mossy Oak, by leaps and bounds. And I said, that's not going to happen. I said, well, look, let's let's give this a little bit. Let's sleep on it. Give it a couple of days, and let's let's revisit and see what we think. At least make it through the school year. So the next morning I was headed to the office. I was in town that couple of days uh, before going to another trip, and I was driving to the office, and I uh, I started praying. And, and, and again, remember, I, I grew up in South Louisiana, a good person, a good guy, raised right. I wasn't raised in church. I was a little Catholic boy. Um, I didn't spend any time in church. I just knew that there was an entity up there that when you had issues going on or you had an emergency, you just threw a prayer up there, said thank you, amen, and hope somebody handled it, or you just said a prayer and then you handled it and just deal with the outcome. But I remember my prayer that morning on the way to work, and, and, and it was pretty selfish, uh, but pretty simple. It was it was on the on the aspect of I said I said God, you, you know how much i like what i do you know how much i i need this job to provide for my family but you know you know who i am and you know what i do and and if you could help me out in this situation um with with my girls i'd appreciate it because i I don't want to lose this job i've i've worked too hard to get to this point amen and i left it at that and that was in in before thanksgiving mid to early november well, around the first week in December, um, I was working on a bunch of duck stuff um, for Whistling Wings, and I had this idea that I, I really wanted to portray Phil Robertson and the duckmen that were there at that time, uh, but but do it on TV. And we were mm-hmm. also doing a VHS series at the time, and I wanted to be able to, to have that footage in our repertoire shot by us, not given to me from Phil, but shot by us, um and, and use it for our show so i called him and i said uh i said phil let me talk to you about something i got in mind and i told him what i thought we needed to do i said look you got that place in texas and i said it's, it's absolutely incredible and i said i'd love to come down there and, and shoot a couple of episodes with you and then have enough footage to where we can use it on our vhs as well and, and have you guys who is already on our pro staff be a big part of what we're doing i said plus phil i said. This TV stuff, man, right now is powerful. And I said, I, I just I want to be able to help you in your business. I said, I, I know what you're doing over there. I know how small your duck call business is, and you're doing it out of that little garage. But I, I said, I'll be totally honest with you. I feel that if we do this, number one, you're not ready for the hit that's going to come from it, but you need it. And and he never he never took a deep breath and nothing on the phone. He said, Ruiz, I, I, we ain't doing that. I said, what do you mean we ain't doing it. I said, why not? We're just going to come film you. It's no different than what you do every day. He said, Ruiz, no. He said, you you got to remember, we're competitors in Walmart. You know, we have our VHS tapes, the Duckman, and you have Whistling Wings. And he said, you start pasting my face all over those videos, and you're going to outsell me, and people are not going to pick up my videos. And I said, no. I said, that's not going to happen. He said, what do you mean? I said, well, we don't put nobody's face on the video covers. It's just it's the ducks. It's usually a good duck picture, and it says Whistling Wings. And... I said, I might have a little screen grab on the back of it from the inside of the video on the back cover, and in and, and, and copy it will read that you're on it. But I said, but other than that, that's it. Plus, you'll have two TV shows that won't cost you a dime.
1: <clears throat>
2: I said, this ain't going to cost you any money. I don't, want, I don't want you to be out of pocket anything. You just tell me where, when. I said, I know where, but you tell me when and what time I need to be there. And he took a deep breath. He said, Brewers, let me get back with you on this one. I got to talk with Big Red and a couple of guys. And I said, All right, well, just let me know. I said, Come on now, the season's not far from being out. So I didn't hear from him for a couple of days. And um, I had another trip scheduled that I was supposed to go on. And <laughs> in all my years of doing this up until that point, uh, I had never had a, a trip postponed or canceled for anything. And, um, I had a trip that, that was supposed to come up and, and it was it was postponed. But prior to that my daughter had came home and she was all excited about a little friend that she made, uh her name was Jana. And she told me she had met their grandparents and they visited and talked and she it was just she was just excited to have a friend and it was they lived close to us, um so they were able to, to visit back and forth. And she was excited about it, and she told me, she said, well, they invited me to go to church, and and I think I really would like to go with them just to go hang out. And I said, well, that's good. I said, have fun and and go. She said, well, I don't want to go with myself. I I want you and Mama to come with me. And I said, well, babe, I said, Mama can go with you. I said, but you know my schedule. I said, it's crazy this time of the year. I said, I'm I'm not going to be able to make it. She said, well, that's fine. She said, if if you can, okay. And I was like, all right, I ain't got to go to church because, man, I ain't stepped foot in the church since I was since I was christened as a baby probably, or maybe Easter as a young boy, because my aunt would drag me into the Catholic church there at home. And uh, now we're back to where we were, but when that trip got canceled, I had to go to church. (laughs) And it's the right thing for Dad to do, correct? I mean, you do what your daughter wants to do, and I'm trying to make sure she's happy. So we pull in the parking lot there at West End Baptist Church in West Point, Mississippi, and uh, we pull up. Shannon gets out. She thinks we're going to get out with, and she gets out. And Jana meets her there, and they're all excited and like little girls do. And I said, "Y'all go ahead. We are coming." And she shut the door. And Belinda says, "My wife, Belinda says, what are you doing?" I said, "I'm not going in there with all them people right now." I said, "Let's just wait till everybody goes in, and then we'll just slip in the back and just sit down." And she says, "Why?" Why? I said, "I." I said, I just don't want being there. I said, I'm Jesus freaks. They start talking to you. I said, plus I know half the people in that church. They they work with me or they they are from around here. And I said, when they see us, they're gonna invite us to come to this, and they're gonna want us to go to this event and that event. Before you know it, they want you in the church, and then they want your money, and then they want your time. I said, I I I ain't no part of that right now. She said, you're you're sick. I said, whatever. I said, but I'm not going in. So everybody went into the church, and they started playing the music. It's praise and worship time at the beginning and I kinda tried to time it perfect where I could walk in while everybody was singing and just sit down. And we walked into the foyer of the church and they were playing and we started to walk in and right as we walked in the music went down and brother Curtis Middleton was getting up to give the let the week events on the bulletin. And uh right as I sat down in the pew, in the middle of the church, the middle aisle, I sat down and that pew squeaked like as loud as you can imagine, and you and I both know. If you're sitting in the church and you hear a pew squeak, at that moment when somebody's giving, it's almost like it's squeaking during an invitation or something. But at that moment when when everything's quiet, everybody turned around, and I'm like, Oh no, they all know I'm here. And I can even I even made eye contact with a couple of people, and they were like, Oh hey man, I'm glad you're here. And I'm like, Oh, they're gonna want to talk to me after church. I gotta get out of here. <laughs> so I just sat there and bared it for a little bit, and he got uh, Brother Curtis got done, and. Brother Ken got up there and started preaching his sermon and he was about five to seven minutes into his sermon and I mean Brother Ken's the type of preacher now that I know him I didn't know it back then, but now that I know him he was he was a guy he 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 would wear the carpet out on the pulpit i mean back and forth back and he was he was a he was more of a he was a great pastor but he was more an evangelist than anything and and he would never keep still but that night he never walked away from the pulpit or from the stand and he kept looking right at me and everything that he was saying was directed straight at me and the more he preached the worse i felt i actually leaned over to my wife and i said have you been you've been coming over here telling these people stories about me she said shut up pay attention and she was like hit me in the ribs because i'm like i'm ready to get out of there i'm i'm freaking out and I had an experience at a, a very radic- radical Pentecostal church when I was younger. A friend of mine went to in Louisiana, and and I was like, oh, here we go. We're we in one of these deals now. They they know you're here. They talk bad about you, and they tell you things that you really don't want to hear, and then you feel bad about yourself, and, and before you know it, you're a Jesus freak. Not that I was against Jesus. I didn't even know who he was, and it didn't bother me. I was a good guy. That's all you yeah. needed to be, right? Just a good guy and treat people right. That's how I was raised. So we left the church, got out of there before anybody picked on us and talked to me. And um, I was home for a couple of days. Um, we hunted around West Point there for a couple of days. And then the weekend came about. About Friday, Shanna comes up and she says, Hey, Dave, I've been invited to go back to church with Jana and her grandma and grandpa and mom and daddy. She says, um, Do you all want to go? I said, No, babe, I can't go. I've got to be here, 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 here. And I was trying to make a million excuses not to go. But I wound up going anyway. And... um I didn't sit in that same pew, though. I sat in the one on the other side of the aisle because I, I had a feeling it wouldn't squeak. And uh, I sat down in the same spot, but on the other side of the of the the pews, which would be on another aisle off to the left of the center aisle. Just so I wouldn't have to look at Brother Ken preach right down the middle of that aisle. And when he started preaching, again he never moved from the pulpit, and he and he and he stared right down the aisle at me. He didn't look at me constantly the whole time, but in my mind, he was. And I'm thinking, why does this guy keep looking at me? He knows I'm not from here. He knows I'm not from this church. I don't go to this church. That's what he's doing. He's doing everything he can to get me in this church, to get his hands in my pocket, to get my money, and to make me think I need to be a Jesus freak. That's what I thought. That was my mindset at that point in time in my life because I was I was just too busy with life. I left out of there, man, I was I was like, Actually, I was kind of scared trying to figure out what was going on because some of the things he was saying—it was the, the 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 brokenness that it gave me and the conviction that it gave me was was overwhelming. And and I was like, this this is just crazy. I got I got to get back to work just to forget about this. Well, I go back to the office that that following Monday and, and Phil calls me, and he says, "Ruiz, let's do this thing." I said, "Well, what are you talking about?" He says, "That." that hunt you want to do when can you come I said well I told you to tell me when you want me there he gave me the date which was pretty quick Uh, it was within four days and I loaded up everything me and Justin Flaherty who worked with us at the time we loaded up in the van and we took off to Texas and met with Phil and got everything unloaded and we were ready to go for the next morning and was hunting with a friend of ours Benny Prince who owned some property there in North Texas and those those ducks, it's absolutely incredible. They're coming out of peanut fields, feeding in dry peanut fields, and they come into all these cow tanks. And I don't mean a, a metal tank. They come into cow ponds out in, in pastures and in, in the woods there in Texas, and everybody's ever been to Texas, you know what I'm talking about. And that's what you're hunting in. So for, for, for a videographer who's filming ducks, it's, it's the ultimate place to film because the ducks are coming to the X. They come in right there every single time, and it's absolutely incredible to video. Mm-hmm. So we get there the first morning, we go out, and we have an incredible morning. Just a pen- bluebird day, pintails and green heads. just, man, just coming in. It was it was like shooting them at 15 yards and, you know, got to the point to where I was telling Phil, all right, that duck right there on the left, shoot that one. You know, you can pick the duck and shoot what duck you <laughs> wanted to kill. Oh, uh, that's
1: like, awesome. Yeah. yeah, it was
2: perfect video, perfect for video, and everything went great. And And I've been knowing Phil now for several years. And and really didn't know Phil's story or his life story and, and nothing about him. I just, you know, I knew him as Phil the Duckman from Louisiana, the same state I'm from. And um, we came in that morning to eat breakfast, and Benny had cooked his special big breakfast, and he's got these biscuits he, he does. They're 7-Up biscuits, and, and he will not give the recipe. I've been knowing Benny for 25 years now, and I still don't know how to cook them. I've tried it, but I just jack it up every time. And we ate breakfast, and we're all sitting around the table, just talking and visiting, and and laughing and joking, just like duck camp does. And and I said a couple of choice words uh, back in those days. I could cuss with the best of them. Um, growing up on those trawl boats, kind of like being in construction work, um, you you didn't mean anything by it, but that was your vocabulary. It's how you talked, and uh, that's how I talked. And I I happened to say one one really not-so-choice word at the dinner at the breakfast table, and I, and I was looking at Phil when I said it, and I seen that look on his face like, mm. He kind of shrins, like, oh, we don't need that here. And my first thought was, man, you know, I've been hunting all morning with these guys, and I, I I never heard anybody, now that I think about it. I'm sitting here with headphones on, I didn't hear anybody say nothing. I said, I must have pressed a button or something. Somehow something happened. I just kind of blew it off, didn't say nothing about it. So the next morning we go hunting. We have another great hunt, and I grabbed Phil, and I said, Look, Phil, I need to get you over here. I said, Well, everybody's picking up decoys and stuff, and Justin's filming some B-roll footage and stuff. I need you to come over here. I want to do a uh, do some interview stuff with you. Oh, Ruiz, we ain't doing no dang interviews. I said, No, really. I said, I-, I need to talk to you. I got some questions. I need to ask you about a couple of things and just talk to you about a few things about hunting and Phil and the family. And He said, Ruiz, how long is this going to take? I said, Man, I'm telling you, 15 minutes tops. I said, We can knock this out pretty quick. All right, come on, Ruiz, let's go over here. So we went and sat at this one little spot. I set him up against this big, huge live oak tree that we were by, and, and I set the camera in a way that I've never really done it for an interview, but I had to kneel down and look over into the viewfinder and you know talk to Phil and look down, talk to Phil and look down. And I had Phil, filmed, Phil framed um, really tight. I wanted it to be really personal, and, and, and I never, never would have framed anybody like that, but it just... Some reason it th- this this had different feel to it because it's the duck minutes Phil, you know, and this is before he was who he is now. Um yeah. and, and the hype in the in the TV world. And and the beady eyes, the wind wind beaten face, the long black beard. And we start talking and I start asking him questions and we visiting on stuff and, and, and he's talking about hunting and growing up hunting and trapping and being a river rat and all the things that we all know now about Phil. And somewhere in that interview the the tables kind of changed and, and there were some questions that I started asking Phil that um in, in several years back I used to have to go back and look at the footage and, and listen to myself ask those questions because it wasn't me asking those questions and and, and it was questions about God, it was questions about salvation. It was it, it was it was weird how they came about and I and I don't know well I know he didn't come out with it. But it was just it, it somehow found its way in our conversation, and and the further we talked and the more we talked, the deeper it got and the deeper it got, and the more I felt like this is the same stuff and the same feeling I had those two nights at the church. I said, what in the world is going on? Is is, is Phil and this preacher guy friends, and they trying to grab me? What is this Jesus freak stuff? You know, and my my first thought was they pump it in the air that church, and once they get you, they got you. So I kind of I kind of kept listening, but the more I listened, the more I felt like I felt that night in the church. But it got worse on me at, at, at this at this hunt, um, and towards the end of that interview, I literally could not lift my face uh, out of that viewfinder because I had filled I literally filled the viewfinder up with tears from just sitting there crying from conviction and and, and realizing that the things he was saying. I don't know why he was saying them, but man, they would just—they were cutting me like a two-edged sword, just whoo, like hot butter. And I just—I didn't say nothing, man. We got the interview done. I kept my head down. I was like, man, that's perfect. That's awesome, Phil. Thank you, buddy. And he just kind of walked off and went into doing what he does. That night, i was sitting there going through the footage, trying to trying to just keep my mind off of what happened in those three incidences. And then I just—I could not stop thinking about it. I could not stop thinking about what was said and, and, and the things that were said, especially at the church and then, then it solidifies it there with Phil and I'm like, what in what is this? I just couldn't sleep. I stayed up all night and the next morning we went hunting again and had another great shoot and uh I, I had to I had to tell Phil what was going on. I had to tell Phil how I felt, why this was happening. I don't know why I had felt like I had to tell him, but he was my friend. Who else do I tell at that time? Yeah. So I told him, I said, hey, um, i got two more questions i got to ask you in this interview. And he says, what are you talking about, Ruiz? I said, i got to interview you one more time. He says, Troy, we ain't doing no more interviews. And I thought, when I heard him say my first name, I'm like, ooh, I made him mad. He don't want to do this. Because he never calls you by your first name unless he's ticked off or just aggravated with you. And I said, "No, man." I said, "Look, I stayed up all night long, going through the footage, looking at everything." I said, "Man, I got about two more questions to ask you to, to help solidify what we're doing." And I'm just telling you, Phil, this show is going to be—it's going to be two episodes, and it's going to rock, and it's going to blow your doors off in that little old shed that you make duck calls in. <sighs> yeah, Ruiz, whatever. All right, come on. So we went over there, and I set the camera down, put him in the same spot so it would look the same. And I sat him down, and uh, he said, all right, what's the question? And I I sat down in in an Indian-style position with my legs crossed, and I just looked at him, man. I had big crocodile tears rolling down my face, and I could tell he was like, he was looking at me like something ain't right. And I basically just, I sat right there and told him the same thing I just told you and everybody that's listening to this podcast, my story up until the day before when i went hunting with him and that took about an hour maybe a little bit more out of our time and everybody else was waiting for us at the truck and they i knew they had no idea what was going on but they knew me and phil were handling business over there and they'd leave us alone and phil had his he had his his pointer finger under his nose and his Thumb on his chin, and he's kind of sitting there, kind of like resting his head in his hand. And for an hour, I don't think he ever blinked. He just listened to my story intently. I'm most sure he did blink, but I didn't see it. And he listened to the whole story and and everything I had to say. I I literally had his 100% undivided attention. And I got done, and I just I couldn't even talk no more. And he took a big deep breath. Moved his hand, and he grabbed that beard, and he scrubbed that old beard, which went down to his knees about then, and just rubbed it two times. And he looked at me, and he goes, Ruiz, he said, this is serious business, boy. And I'm like, what are you talking about, serious business? He said, we talking about a dead man. And I'm thinking to myself, here I am in the middle of Texas. Phil fixing to shoot me? I mean, what? I said, what do you mean a dead man? He said, we're talking about a dead man's soul. I said, what dead man, Phil? I'm confused. He said, you. I said, I'm not dead. I'm sitting right here. He said, you're dead, Ruiz. You're spiritually dead. I said, what, what, what's that mean, Phil? What, what are you talking about? And we sat right there for another hour, and Phil shared his whole story with me everything that we all know now about Phil, from the books that he's read to the stories that Miss Kay has told. I heard all of that right there uh, at the edge of a duck pond. Oh. And not only did he tell me that story, but he shared the gospel with me and shared the good news of Jesus Christ as to what he did and who he is and why he did what he did for, for me and for you and for, for everybody, for all of us. And... Right then and there, I understood what took place those two nights in that church, what took place in the car wreck that I got in, leaving my occupation. What took place of leaving it it it, it, it proved to me that somebody was putting a puzzle together in my life to get me to that moment right there, and and I accepted Christ right there in that duck blind um, that day in, in January, uh, well well or late December. Um, in texas with phil and it's funny because he, he he said now ruiz he said you need to get baptized now and you need to make this a public profession of faith profession of faith he said um we can do it right here in this in this water i said phil it's 27 degrees out here <laughs> and i said i don't have no dry clothes he said it don't matter Ruez. it's all about jesus and i was like man i said look you told me if i if i if i recite that prayer that you told me to say that that I would be a born-again believer. And I said, I believe that. And I believe something's going on. I said, but I I need to go back and talk to that preacher man. And I didn't even know Brother Ken's name at the time. I said, but I need to talk to that preacher man, and and I want to hear that preacher man tell me the same thing you told me. I said, if you two don't know each other, and he can tell me what you just told me, I'm in. Mm. I said, but it's a long road back to Texas. He said, as you getting the wreck back home. I said, yeah, but you told me I was good. He said, do you believe? I said, man, I, right now I believe it all. I said, I believe that the Jesus is who you say the Jesus is, and I believe Jesus did what you say he did. But I want to know, I want to be sure that what you say and Brother Ken says, coming from two different men, is true, that don't even know each other. And Brother Ken, I came home and told Brother Ken what was going on, and he told me the exact same thing. And I was mm-hmm. like, done well, little did I know several nights that my wife had been dealing with some issues as well, and some of the ladies at the church, and actually Janice, Grandma and Grandpa were talking to her about it, and her and I uh, got baptized the same night at West End Baptist Church together, and came to know Christ as a came a believer there in West Point, Mississippi. And and, and can I say that that it made me a a, a perfect man? No. But but what I can say it did for me in going back and saying what I said earlier about about being a good guy, um, growing up in high school and and all through school and even now as an older man, uh, I still struggle with comprehension. I could read some things and, and and hold on to it for a while, but there's most things that I read that. If you ask me what I read 20 minutes later, I'll be around the bush and give you some cockamamie answer. That may not make any sense, but that's my way of comprehending, and I struggled with that. I always did. But the very first time that I ever read John three three in the Bible, um, it was. it, it was John 3.16 wasn't. John three three was the scripture that sticks with me and will always stick with me the most in my mind. And it's when Jesus was talking to Nicodemus and sharing with him how to become born again. And born of the spirit, but not of the flesh. And when I read that, the the the, the pages and the words just jumped off, and I it, it hit me like Troy, you were a good guy going straight to hell, and mm-hmm. taking a lot of people with you. And man, when I realized that, I was like, wow. And and to look back now on my career, on my life, um, my first two years, two and a half years of being a believer, I tried to get it perfect. And I, I Jack that up so bad. And, and, and <laughs> me too, man. No, oh, we yeah. we all do. And 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 I yeah. think it's something that that he lets us grow into. And and God says, I'm going to let you do these things and understand that Troy, you ain't going to be perfect. Travis, yeah. you ain't going to be perfect. My son died for you because I know you can't be perfect. He said, I already tried that once with the first world and it didn't work. Yep. And that's yeah. that's me, man. And and it's it's brought me here. It's brought me around the world. I've been able to share that story with many, many, many people. It's it's not a big, you know. I'm a drug addict, and I killed somebody, and I did this, and I'm in prison. I learned how to uh, accept Christ, or I learned about Christ. Man, look, I got saved in a duck blind, and that just proves <laughs> to me that that God is everywhere, and He's working there. And the thing that I realized, and I realized this the other day, Travis, and I, I'm gonna shut up, but I love telling the story. I got to thinking about it the other day because I had shared this story with, with somebody on a, a phone call, and I got to thinking. I said I, I, I had to beg Phil to let me come on that duck hunt to
1: mm-hmm. video
2: him. And here's a man who was who is man. He is he is incredible. His story, his testimony is incredible. Where he's at, and Miss Case is even more incredible than his. But here's a man that was a believer who was more focused at the time, and I'm not beating my brother down, but he was at the same point I was, but he was a believer, and he didn't want to do the duck hunt. He didn't look at that opportunity going, I'm going to have this guy come with me, and I'm going to be able to witness to him when he gets here. No matter where we are, no matter what we're doing, and no matter who we're with, we always have an opportunity.
0: And that is where we will wrap things up with Troy Ruiz. Man, I enjoyed that. I enjoyed hearing his elk stories. That got me fired up. And then we got into that duck hunting. And I'm not a duck hunter, but that was an incredible story. And and you guys know that wasn't really about duck hunting. It was about... Uh, how Troy Ruiz became a Christian, and I'm glad that you, I'm glad I got to hear that story. I didn't know that story, and I've seen this guy on TV for years, and there's such power once again in hearing a story, and so if you are a Christian, um, I would just encourage you, rather than maybe yelling at people on Facebook about your political beliefs or standing on a corner with a bullhorn telling everybody they're going to turn or burn, um, I'd encourage maybe just to share your story. Um, Share the way that God has changed your life. Because if he hasn't changed your life, then then we're not doing it right. <laughs> um, Troy's life was completely changed through believing in Jesus Christ and, and having Jesus take care of his sins. And my life was changed that way. I was only 11 when that happened. I'll save that story for another time, um, for, for time's sake. But if you aren't a Christian and you're still listening to this, I, I have to ask you the question, um, what do you think about this? Where are you at? is it something that you just you don't know about you don't believe in you have questions or doubts um, I'd love to talk to you. I'm not going to cram anything down your throat. I'll just tell you what, what I believe and what I think the Bible says. That's where I think we get our answers from. Send me an email at sheddinglightod at gmail.com. I'd be more than happy. I'll respond very quickly. Uh, even give you my phone number. We can chat back and forth and, and see where you're at on things. Um, If you choose not to believe, that's. I hope that you'll still keep listening. We have a plenty of good hunting stories coming up, and that's part of what this podcast is about, is these stories. So, I uh, hope that you won't won't shy away um but that's where we're going to go ahead and wrap things up today i i really appreciate once again troy coming on you can watch primos just about any time that you want to (laughs) on tv i don't have to promote that they are uh, already uh, just a great company and um, there's plenty of good products to use from them but i I think troy would rather you just kind of listen to some of those words that he said at the end and, and that's how we'll close thank you guys for listening to this episode and remember to shed the light